I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and uh, I'm a gadfly uh, at The New York Times and The New Yorker and uh, Newsday. And welcome to the 47th episode of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Uh, we've been promising or threatening a mailbag <laughs> episode for some time now, and today we're finally making good on that promise because the bag is full. We've gotten a lot of excellent questions from our listeners, and I think it'll be fun for us to uh, talk about them on this episode. Um, but first, we're going to uh, discuss a topic I really wanted to discuss, uh, particularly triggered by... Uh, the experience of one of the uh, members of Three on the Isle who's going through some some interesting personal um, trials, I would say, and how and and I was curious about how our personal lives affect what we do when we sit down and watch a play. I mean, everybody has that experience in one way or another, but I thought addressing it as people whose job it is to lay aside some of what happens to us in real life and evaluate what we see in front of us um, more, uh, uh, not objectively, but certainly more soberly, uh, what, what, what we do bring in, in and how that changes what we see in front of us and how we write about it. And uh, as always, we'll wrap up with a discussion of recent shows uh, we've seen. Um, so... In terms of this conversation that uh, Peter just mentioned, I think it's fair uh, that Terry started us off. Uh, and uh, as listeners, regular listeners of Three on the Yell, uh probably know, and also people who follow uh, Terry on social media, right. uh, know uh, uh, Terry's a caregiver for Mrs. T, um, his wife, who's waiting for a double lung transplant. And and clearly, I, I don't know how that could not have any... I mean, I don't know if it was me, I would... Be a, a barely functioning wreck. <laughs> uh, so clearly, this must have an impact of mm. some sort on how you watch shows. And Terry, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, in the case of certain specific shows, the impact is pretty obvious. Um, a couple of years ago, back when Mrs. T was still able to go to the theater, uh, we went to Yale Rep to see Amy Herzog's new play, about mm -hmm. which I knew nothing mm -hmm. other than she had written it. It was called Mary Jane, and I like her work. I thought this would be good to go to. Mm. I had no idea that it was an extremely harrowing play about a caregiver. Mm. And I'm, I've am i got to tell you, that blindsided both of us. <laughs> really? Uh, but it, I mean, it didn't, uh, from my point of view, the main effect that it had was that I really felt that I was in a position to weigh how accurate the portrayal was. I don't know Amy Herzog, but I know something about what it's like to be taking care of somebody. And uh, uh, I mean, in fact, I was very specifically impressed by the the, the honesty of the portrayal and the total lack of self-pity of it. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily have known these things under other circumstances. But I, I think the question is getting at something else, which is that when you go into the theater and you're you're dealing with with something mm -hmm. all day, all the time, uh, how is it affecting you? Uh, is it is it getting between you and the show that you're seeing? Is it coloring your responses to it? Um, when you're in crisis mode, when something really alarming is happening, you just don't think about this stuff. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Mrs. T and I were down in Sarasota, and uh, I guess the technical term would be that she blew a gasket and had to go to the hospital. And of course, we're down there for me to see shows, and I'm seeing shows at night, coming back to the hospital, actually writing the reviews on one of those stupid little tables that they put your meal on and push it over your hospital bed while she was in the ICU. Mm. Um, but if you're in crisis mode, a compartmentalization, I think, becomes natural. And you, you switch into what my, my brother uh, calls putting one foot in front of the other. And, um, uh, you know, you do what you have to do. And as far as I know, it doesn't seep into the experience. But, but Terry, uh, if you're in that mode, if you're in some, you know, some um, uh, extreme, not distress, but, you know, you, you, the, the world is weighing very heavy, heavily on your shoulders 
and you're sitting at a, a Terrence McNally comedy <laughs> or some such, uh, is it possible to suspend the rest of the world? Can you, you know, laugh heartily? You have a hearty laugh. <laughs> but can you laugh as heartily as you one might and experience those moments the way you could if the world were you were trip you know you it was just uh, passing by trippingly? Oh boy, can you ever! You I, can't. I, I, I just I can't even begin to tell you how much so. I mean, in crisis mode, you're compartmentalizing naturally. When it's harder, is when you're not dealing with an imminent right now. What are we going to do next? Crisis. But you're just worn down from the day-to-day -day stresses of, of taking care of somebody. And, and in our case, uh, knowing that the phone could ring in the middle of a performance to let us know that we've got a pair of lungs. I mean, it, it's that's when, I, I, before this happened, I, I wondered, what would it be like? Is it going to get in the way of my doing my work? Right. And, and in fact, what has happened, and I've noticed this over and over again, and I've noticed it particularly with comedies, is that the show becomes a refuge, something that you escape into. Mm. Uh, and for me, this is like a test. It's what's telling me that I'm still able to do my job right. properly. Right. Uh, because if, if I do get to the theater and the lights go down and the action starts and I'm gone for, for two and a half hours or however long it is, I know that all the reflexes are working correctly and that I'm fully responsive. And, and I mean, that's the professional part of it. But the personal part of it is that it's an escape. Mm. Uh, you, if you're really into a show, if you're completely present, as theater people say in it, then uh, it's a relief because when you're not in that state, uh, there's rarely a time when I'm not thinking about uh, all the things that you think about when you are a caregiver. Mm. But when I'm in the theater and it's a good show or a really bad one, uh, you know, you, you just get lost in it. And for me, that that's the real blessing of the work. Um, and o only under only under circumstances where the show itself is for some particular specific reason, mm -hmm. reminding me of right. proximate circumstances, exactly. as Mary Jane did. Uh, do, do I find myself thinking about it? So I, I often say that I have the best job in the world, but I have an especially good job right now because it provides me with this essential escape from the travails of everyday life as a caregiver. It's interesting you, to hear you speak about it <clears throat> because I think when, you know, the things that rub one's nerves the rawest are the times when it becomes a really interesting intersection between your life and what you're seeing. For me, uh, I had an experience a few years ago uh, when I, the first time of the many times I've seen Dear Evan Hansen, the first time was at Arena Stage uh, in the summer of 2000, I don't know, 17, I can't remember, 16, whatever it was. And the opening scene uh, portrays a mother and her anxiety-ridden uh, uh, son and uh, her coaxing, her trying to find the ways to coax him into the world uh, through very minor issues like, you know, ordering a pizza for dinner and having to confront, either get on the phone or confront the guy at the door when he delivers or she delivers the pizza. And I found myself in that moment sitting in the theater and it was as if uh, visually a camera had come and swooped in and was was trained on my face and watching me experience what felt like a moment out of my own life with a child with anxiety. And I've talked about Lizzie having anxiety before, so it's not a surprise to anybody. And she talks about it openly, too. But it made me so attached to this show. The attachment was more than you know, the objective observer trying to evaluate how well this scene was played, it felt like me up there. And as a result, you know, I kind of fell in love. Um, I was fortunate that other people fell in love with it too. It wasn't just me, but it was so, it remains so connected to my experience. It was so both consoling and upsetting uh, that 
you know, I didn't feel, I felt, I felt like it was, I had permission to love this musical because it was speaking so personally to me. Not well, because, I think also, also yeah. Peter, you must have been felt that you were in a position to gauge the truth of what you were seeing. Right, right. Yeah. That's, and that's really important too. That's I mean, it. It's just like, it's just like when somebody who, somebody's trying to do a regional accent in a show and that's where you come from and you know how bad the accent mm -hmm. is or how good it is. I mean, uh, we do bring special knowledge sometimes, special personal knowledge to the, the theater going experience and it's valid or can I, be. I think it touches on an issue that is very tricky and, and it's hard to differentiate because there's the issue of objectivity, which of course nobody has. Right versus fairness mm -hmm. and the best you can do is aim for fairness mm -hmm. you cannot aim for objectivity because it's just not possible you you know we're not going to see shows the same way we're just different but the idea of fairness and i think that touches on an idea of i don't know empathy is a word that's ugh, it's used too much right now but i think it touches on the issue in in how to make and look at art mm -hmm. of how to judge art that may not speak to you directly. Mm -hmm. You know, this mm. idea that someone is better to review something because they have a quote unquote natural connection to it right. because of race or gender or right. sexual orientation or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But we can, nobody can, it would be insane to me to have this kind of criteria, these boxes of, you know, somebody can only write about this topic if they belong in the same box. Mm -hmm. And I think that applies to us also as consumers and receivers. Right. And, and that's yeah. where I think the distinction between objectivity and fairness is really key to right. me. Yeah, I think that's well, a very good point. Yeah, I'm yeah. old fashioned. I mean, I think that great art aspires to universal communication. And, uh, Right. I mean, it's true that we may have particular things in our lives that cause us to resonate with a specific show or a specific moment or a specific line. But uh, the miracle of this process is that what's that camera that's that's uh, closing in on you, Peter, when you were mm -hmm. watching your Evan Hansen, mm -hmm. uh, ideally it's closing in on 500 other people in the theater at the same time. Uh, you know, and that's kind, that's kind of the miracle of the process. Indeed. But I'm what I'm really curious about is not so much what you bring in in terms of your you know your history as a you know a woman or a gay man or as a you know as a person of color or as a Jewish New Yorker or whatever. I'm really I'm really interested in what sort of pricks your emotion that turns that key in a way that makes it personal that 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 you then have to recognize that something's being done to you that maybe is different um, than it than it is being done to anybody else. I mean, Terry's situation is so particular in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the, the consequences and the and the stakes. Uh, but Elizabeth, I wonder, have you had do you do you find are there times are there like, you know, are there plays or musicals that, you know, that get so close to who you are that you it turns your head? As opposed to saying, gee, that's a beautifully crafted line, uh, you're saying, oh, my God, that I love this. This is who I am. Or uh, I I reject the idea that this is me. And, and I no, actually, this is really weird, but I can't think of any. I can't think of any with me. It's basically it's really based on on aesthetics in a very, very broad sense, mm -hmm. aesthetics and politics also in a very broad sense. Mm -hmm. But I cannot think of, no, I, it's, is that not weird? No, I, it's not I, weird. I think it's a difference no. in maybe in terms of how you even started experiencing. The At theater. the same time, I have a very hard time. Unlike Terry, I have a very hard time compartmentalizing. I can't, <laughs> this word is too much. Um, I mean, that's very situations. hard for me. If I go, sometimes I'll be in a really foul mood for whatever reason. And it's very hard for me to not have that takeover. Very, very hard. I try to reschedule if I can actually, when mm. that happens. Mm. Now, Interesting. I, I resonate with situations in the theater, uh, with, with, you know, the pain, parting and loss, uh, humiliation, things like that. Mm. I mean, that's what connects with me more as a general rule, more than anything particular that I think probably the hardest I've ever cried at a performance was at Floyd Collins, mm. um, 
a show that doesn't really overlap with my personal experience very much, as far as I know. You were never but trapped in a hall, Terry? Is that what you're saying? Not that I recall. Oh, okay. But it, 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 uh, but it really connected with me on, on an emotional level, uh, quite overwhelmingly. And uh, um, Was that the music? I, 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 I mean, are we talking now about aesthetics? I mean, I, 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 was that the, the construction or the sort of the technical uh, virtuosity of, the, of what happened? Or was, it was something deeper um, in terms of like almost spiritual? Oh, something deeper. It's the total experience, the, the, the total immediate experience coming off the stage. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't cry because of a particularly good 6-4 chord. Uh, well, actually, I, <laughs> oh, I, I do. I've been known yeah. to, but I mean, that's not really normal. That's interesting. Uh, but but uh, it's, it's, there are certain kinds of emotions and situations that connect with me. And when a show portrays them with truth, that is when uh, I bring myself to the moment, I think. Yeah, it's an, it, I find emotional intelligence and the whole issue, I mean, so uh, a part of me, of how I perceive uh, works, and I think it has to do with the level of consolation that theater was for me as a child. It was so important to me to lose myself in, and to feel allied to uh, the worlds that were being portrayed on a stage and the people who were bringing certainly music to it, uh, that I, I kind of, I think I go back to the theater every night wanting to feel that. And somehow things that happen that remind me of, of my world in an honest way, as you say, Terry, not in a, not just for the sake of replicating or, or feeling or, or, or sort of, you know, melodramatically presenting serious topics. But I find myself, um, you know, aching for those experiences. And when they happen, they're so pure that I have my, I, I trust my response completely. Whereas sometimes, you know, I, I struggle more with what I'm seeing mm. and I, but having those touchstones moments in, in, in pieces of theater uh, really helps define why I'm doing this. And there are, there are shows that we understand better as we get older. Mm. Like, Lear is not a play for young people. Right. I don't think mm. that a young person can, can really grasp uh, in the way that somebody who is toward the end of his own life or, and with people who are toward the end of theirs uh, and has seen a lot of pain can appreciate, you know, when he talks about uh, they kill them for their sport, lines like that. Mm. That's something that you have to, you have to bring experience to the table to properly gauge. And uh, um, uh, Lear in particular comes to mean more and more to me as Ter I grow older. Terry, I'm curious on a night when you on a long night on a night when you're sitting for three hours or three and a half or three fifty even for God's sakes. Uh, do you find that the time that you're away from Mrs. T becomes uh, does it does it in induce any level in, in, of anxiety in you? Uh, and does that affect, you know, the sort of let's get on with it feeling of a performance? You know, if you know you've got to be home, you're not home. You're away from her. Does that um, does that does that affect how you think about what you're seeing, or can you stay in the moment all the way through? Yeah, not if the show's good. I mean, that's really <laughs> it boils, it that's really honest to God. That's really the test. Yeah, I mean, if true. you're yes, if you're so, completely yeah. on board, right. uh, you know that. Uh, I mean, uh, I unlike most people, must keep my phone on vibrate throughout a performance because of the the necessity to be available in case of a donor call. Uh, but uh, uh, as long as the phone isn't vibrating, uh, if I'm bored, then I'm bored, and then I might start thinking about uh, this kind of stuff. But if I'm not bored, honestly, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm mm. up there mm. uh, on stage. Mm. I find it fascinating, Elizabeth, that you say you have none of these moments. And I, yeah, I me have too. to... I mean, I think maybe I, I wonder if it's, you know, we're, was it your training somehow... Was there some kind of education in, I, I automatically think, well, in Corsica, <laughs> no, maybe they, but, your approach is so like intellectual. This is the French uh, sort I, of like uh, uh, notion of. I uh, think something. actually, yes, maybe partly it mm -hmm. might be a French thing, but I tend not to. And I think also it, it's me, like I am, I don't, 
identify. Like I'm not a person, I have never been obsessed with a show or a piece of art, you know, like mm. this is kind of cult of uh, being a super fan now, the idea of the being the fan. And I can't say that I've ever felt that. That's I also so do not like the personal, I don't like reading memoirs, for instance. You don't like who? I don't like reading memoirs. I'm not, I'm not into people. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. You're into rabbits. I'm into rabbits. Actually, that's a big thing. I have, um, since we've had like rescue pets, I find it really, really hard to uh, watch shows with animals. Interesting. I really, in Sing Street, they they bring out uh, a rabbit for, really a live rabbit for no good reason. And that really pissed me off. Man, I was so cheesed off because I thought that was so exploded. That actually made me angry. Did you write about it? No, but I'm 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 biding my time for when he comes back on Broadway. Well, it sounds like a great idea for a themed piece. I'm completely you know? against live animals on stage, except for like dogs or you know. I mean that that's. You mean trained animals as opposed to animals are used as props, basically. Yeah, like like a prop. That was a prop. Right. That was ridiculous. Right. And rabbits are very fearful animals, and there was no reason Just, to have that. That, that pissed right. me off, and we that really found, okay. Now we have that's found it. Elizabeth that's it. Soft core. Gonna, I, we have finally pierced I, the armor. <laughs> We know now that bunnies do it. Bunnies do it. And you know what? I dreaded War Horse. I dreaded huh. seeing it. Right. And I well, was, it is upsetting, even though I it's a puppet. I was a mess at the end of that show. Mm. Actually, before, during, after, I was. it was horrendous. It was one of the worst. And I remember at the intermission, I was just like, do I really have to go back? I mm. cannot deal with this. Yeah. Well, actually, when you think about it, Marianne Elliott is kind of the queen of of those kind of moments. I mean, she had you know, that true. murder dog and the curiousness of the dog, the the horse and, that's and the live rat. And, There's also a live rat in the, uh, yeah, the, I the dog with this the. A, I think you got this is rich material, anyway, Elizabeth. But but completely unrelated. Like one of the shows, and I don't know when thinking about it now, but one of the shows was really I was left a blubbering, quivering mass of sobs. I was such a mess, and there's no animals right. in it that I remember. But that was a William Finn's Elegies. Did you see that? I did. That musical I did. was, I don't know what it yeah. did to me because I had not, when I saw it, experienced any Interesting. deep loss. So I can't say that, but for some reason, it, it was a nightmare for well, me. Well, it's interesting to hear you because you're not, you're, you're not, you don't go to the next step, which is examining why it made it, you know, what made it so emotional for you. Well, I just thought, oh, was this is really. Was somebody recently when No, 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 it was really not. And, and, uh, and. I just thought, oh, wow, he really gets to it. And I thought it was an artistic achievement. I, I, I did not look into myself. I looked at what he was doing. It, it, interestingly, just to, I know we have to wrap this up, but the most traumatized I ever was with a an animal, this is going to sound insane. Um, <laughs> when I saw, when I was a kid, when I saw Breakfast at Tiffany's, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and at one point in, late in the show, in the movie, she kicks the cat out of the car and like so angry, she says, get out and into the rain. Oh. And I remember sobbing. Terrible. <laughs> I couldn't believe this was being done to a cat. I don't even like cats. And certainly after seeing Cats the movie, I really don't like cats. Well, but at that time, it was the most, I couldn't imagine what would happen to that cat. Anyway. I could not. That would be now. would be like a big no-no. In fact, I regularly consult the website doesthedogdie.com Stop. to make sure. Yes. To make sure that I'm okay in uh, terms such of a thing? animal, there is such a thing. You mean Does the dog die? <laughs> yeah. Like, like in uh, My Dog Skip or one of those movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh well, yeah. that, that's oh, like well, a no-no. How do we, no we get into like this? I... <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Yeah. Before anyway. we before okay. we stray too far afield. Yes. Elizabeth, yes. I know back, it's time for the mailbag, and Elizabeth, yeah. oh, there's a yes. letter in, <laughs> that's tough. There's a that's letter tough. in there right. that has to do with you yourself. Great. Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's true. We we have uh, received a, a, a listener question, which is actually kind of related to what we were just talking about. Uh, and it was sent by the essayist and novelist uh, Bruce Bauer, uh, who I think these days lives in Finland. So we have at least one listener in Finland, which makes me very wow. happy. Uh, and And he wrote... Uh, one of these days, I want Elizabeth to explain how, born in France, right, she ended up a theater critic in New York. Boy, do we do we have hours? <laughs> okay, yeah. so the, the we... short version of this um, is that I uh, came to the U.S. for graduate school, and I just ended up staying and staying and staying. Uh, that was a long time ago, and so I'm still here. 
so that's the short version of how I ended up in the U.S. Uh, and then in terms of becoming a theater critic, um, I was the arts editor at Time Out New York, and the opportunity surfaced to become the theater critic at the New York Post. And I thought, why not? That mm. sounds fun. I mean, obviously, I was already going to the theater. It's not like suddenly I did this crazy career move. Uh, <laughs> I've, always, I've always wanted to ask you what it was like to write for an, a, a, a literate audience in a language that's not your first language. Yeah, I you wish know. you'd talk some about that. That, that interests I, me as well. Well, I think uh, it was really about reading in English very, very early on mm. and listening to songs in English and like following the lyrics on my old LPs um, and just kind of remembering. Like I never looked at dictionaries, for instance, for translations. I mm. would figure it out from context. That's and that kind of, so I think about it in context. Mm. Um, and then practice. And, you know, when I came for grad school, I was, I went to the, um, the student newspaper and I said, hey, can I, can I write for you? And bless their heart. I mean, I only wanted free stuff, mind you, because I was writing about music and I wanted free, free, free records. <laughs> so it was crassly materialistic. But the driving motive of nine tenths of all. Critics. Absolutely right. right. Uh, it really was. I wanted free stuff, and uh, and it was a really good way to get that. And uh, it was a good way to learn on the job at a student newspaper. And it happened to be a very good one. It was the Rutgers Daily Targum. Do you write? <laughs> in, in, do, do you write in French as well? Not so much anymore. Hmm. Not so much. Hmm. Uh, I write mostly in English now. Um, but um, I mean, I write and speak French with my friends and family, but not professionally. I kind of want to go back into it, but I find it hard at hmm. this point because I really think in English and I think English is better for the way I tend to write, which is maybe a little drier than the French, very uh, style obsessive style uh, approach. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so that's how it happened. Uh, and I started watching TV because uh, we had a lot of theater on TV in France. So I watched a lot of that. I watched a lot of theater on TV and loved it. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of I how I ended you that opportunity. To, oh, yeah, no, we had like every Friday we had a play uh, on TV and they had like a lot of Comédie Française uh, stage plays. And we, yeah, we had a lot. And they still do actually have a lot of theater on French TV. Um, so it's, it's remarkably, uh, rare. I mean, coming here, then I realized how weird it was, but of course for us, it was completely normal. Mm. Um, mm. so that's how it happened. Mm. Um, do you mm. guys have, uh, origin stories? Um, well, I, st I started writing in Yiddish. No, I'm kidding. I, I didn't have, no, um, uh, I, I, my in, my origin story is basically uh, I always loved 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 the theater. Wanted to be an actor at one time. Um, my father was a frustrated uh, actor, uh, and uh, I acted in high school. I I went, but I loved journalism too. So I went into journalism. Eventually, started covering the arts, and the New York Times asked me to switch over to criticism. That's that was the you know that's the origin story for me. But it really came from. The archival uh, uh, work that I did was all in going, you know, to plays and musicals from the time I was five years old until I got the job as a critic when I was in my uh, late 30s or early 40s even. Um, so that's, I, I suspect I'm the one pure journalist of the three of us, mm -hmm. in that sense, yeah, um, I think so. I think that's where yeah. it all came from. But for Terry, it was really a, a migration from one art yeah. form to another, wasn't it? That's true. Although I did, I did theater in high school and college, and loved it. I mean, I first I saw my first play on stage when I was in junior high school. Uh, was bitten by the bug, started doing theater, but I was uh, in training as a musician. I thought thought of myself as a musician to be. Uh, I majored in music in college and uh, then realized or it was suggested to me that I ought to consider writing about music. And um, uh, boom, you know, the key had turned and it made sense. And I spent a number of years as, as one of the music critics of the Kansas City Star. Hmm. Uh, I had wider cultural interests than that. And right from the beginning, I was writing about a very wide range of topics eventually including theater, but I never at any point imagined myself as either becoming a theater person because I, I was not 
a great actor. I was what the British call a useful actor, <laughs> in, a, in a second grave digger kind of guy. Uh, and uh, so I thought I'd found my level, uh, and I was quite content with it. Mm. And then f 15 years ago, um, uh, first I have to explain that at the Wall Street Journal, our institutional structure is different from that of most newspapers. We regard uh, criticism as a species of opinion journalism, and so our critics report to editorial. So uh, meaning, I got a, meaning the editorial page, right? Correct. So I got a call from Paul Jagot, who is the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal, who said, come on downtown. Uh, we'd like to have lunch with you and talk about our arts coverage. And I came down in all innocence. And Paul said, uh, look, we don't we're not covering theater and we think that we really need to. And we're looking for somebody not a conventional theater critic, but somebody whose interests has, have ranged very widely and somebody who can locate theater in the larger world of arts and ideas. And might you want to try this? And I was fascinated by the idea. I said, sure, uh, let's just shake hands on it. Nothing more. And we'll give it a go. So I looked at the schedule and decided that I wanted, I had to choose what I was going to write for my first review. David Ives had a play going up called Polish Joke. Uh, I picked that. Hmm. And within, I don't know, six weeks, I realized that um, I had found the thing I wanted to do. That's great. Uh, in the next part of my life, uh, something that, that drew on everything that I knew about. It wasn't just writing about theater, but it was writing about music. It was writing about dance, the hmm. visual arts, uh, larger questions of art and politics. Mm. It was all there, implicit in theater. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I just thought, I, I don't know how this happened, but I think I'm going to stand on this. And uh, as I say, that was 15 years ago. And I have never, never had a second thought since then. I mean, quite the contrary. Uh, this, this other thing happened to me a few years ago when I started writing for the stage and directing. So the whole, what I guess is likely to be the last third of my life, has been taken over by theater and that's unusual as far as i know that is not the way that theater critics normally work mm -hmm. but it's been perfect for me because no possibility of being jaded no possibility of being burned out uh, i came to this late and i am still completely thrilled by what i do and i think it has something to do with the fact that I came to it so late. Hmm. Well, that leads nicely into the other part of uh, Bruce's um, missive. Do you want me to just read it or does yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, Bruce also wrote and we'll all pat ourselves on the back for his <laughs> lovely words. Wonderful podcast. But even though the interview was terrific on the episode, I guess he was referring to, I love most the interaction among you three. There's something very special about it. I guess the word is chemistry and just mutual respect and kindness and even sweetness in the midst of disagreement. Boy, um, is that Bruce Bauer, bless you for saying that, because right now it, it seems as though the whole world is choking on disagreement and that everybody feels obliged to take disagreement to the, the, the ultimate limits and they break with people and, you know, they want to silence them. And the fact is that the three of us, get together in this studio twice a month. And I don't know that we agree about all that much, but I have never, ever noticed our getting bent out of shape about any disagreement. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the chemistry is for other people to judge, but I have no doubt that, that there is an enormous amount of respect. I think it's rooted in the fact that none of us are young. And so uh, we know what we think about the world, and I, I don't feel threatened by other people's opinions. I don't feel threatened by your opinions. I'm interested in them, mm. but I'm not threatened by them. Yeah, I think the idea of not being threatened uh, is, is an important one. And by the way, speaking of chemistry, I mean, sometimes Peter and I happen to be at the theater the same night and people are kind of blinded by us. Um, they, when they see us, you know, sitting kind of in the same vicinity, it's kind of like, a, it's got like a Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> Going, but I know the sexual tension. You could cut it with a knife. The sexual tension is pretty intense, yeah, it is. and it can be 
can be upsetting yeah. to some people. I sometimes ask to be put on the other side of the theater. Yeah, yeah. we we have to request yeah. to be that's, not sitting on the same that, area because we don't want God to given. disrupt. That's, we don't want to disrupt people's enjoyment. Given. I realize yeah. it can be yeah, a little indeed. intense, like the thing between us. But yeah, <laughs> I know it's uh, we we we. It's, we're and we're both we're in therapy together for this. So that's the other <laughs> we can confess. But at the, but the other, I would say, do you know I, the other part of this that we've never really talked about is, um, I think what happened. Interestingly, Bruce, we didn't really know one another before we started doing this. None of us that's were really right. friendly. No, we, no, we knew no. each other by sight or by work. Right. Uh, it really happened sort of spontaneously when we all got on a panel together. On Tinder. And what happened? No, is not. Don't listen to her. <laughs> but wait. But I was going to say, what's interesting, what I think the, the centrifugal force that keeps us all spinning together is the theater. We mm -hmm. all have such a, I think, pure love of it. It's not put on. It's not manufactured. It doesn't, we don't force ourselves to try to think of what we need to say about our own feelings. It's pure. And I think that out of that has become mutual respect and a kind of, uh, you know, mind meld, even when the minds are in three different spheres. And Maybe that's especially. been a wonderful uh, that's what's kept me wanting to do this uh, yeah. with uh, Terry and Elizabeth. So yeah. I appreciate I, that you recognize that, Bruce. I'll tell I, you something. When we first considered doing this, it's totally unrelated to mind melds. But, <laughs> you know, we had we had appeared together, the three of us, on uh, the old TV show Theater Talk. And when we got the idea to maybe do a podcast, I thought, you know, one reason why this might work is because our speaking voices are so sharply contrasted. Mm. And I've done a lot of radio, and I knew that having three really different voices in the studio would at least potentially make for something effective. Obviously, you want the three voices to be saying interesting things, if possible. But uh, you always know which one of us is talking on this show. And that's not a small thing in radio where the visual element is missing. Hmm. Yeah. No, I pretty, yeah, I, I fully agree. Should we move on to the next one? We sure. have another listener question from Australia. Okay, Finland and now Australia. 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 Uh, this one comes, I, I'm, I'm not mocking because my beloved spouse is in Australia right now. So uh, definitely not listening to us. Uh, and <laughs> you so, don't know. No, I know, oh. I know. Uh, this, we'll this, ask the rabbits. Yeah, we'll ask the rabbits. The rabbits will not speak. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so this one comes to us from Christopher Johnston, and I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to read that from okay. Christopher. Um, Christopher writes, uh, I am interested in your perspective on violence, what works on stage and what does not. Oof. Ooh, that's, that's a good a one. Really good that's a, that's a question. really good one. I love that's a it very personally. Good okay, so what works for you? What works Always? for me is when there, and it has not have to be physically violent, but mm -hmm. there's a kind of emotional violence on stage that's really when I feel so upset and unsettled. And that to me is a good thing, uh, where it kind of makes you reconsider and think about your, your reaction, which is completely going against what I was saying earlier, but that's okay. I'm not here to be, make sense. Uh, and uh, we're, I, one of my favorite shows actually was a show called Jerk. It was a solo about a serial killer mm. uh, who was getting his, and he was done with puppets. And it was one of the most terrifying shows I've ever seen. It was at La Mama, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and it was incredibly violent, although you didn't see anything. Mm. It was all in the way he was relating what the serial killer was doing to, to his victims. And it was just almost unbearable uh, because, uh, again, you didn't see anything, but it was just, getting into your head in such a way. And I, I would count that as violence. Hmm. And then there's physical violence where the actors, and I've seen that, especially in German productions, I have to say, where the actors are like, they have bruises. A history of violence. Yeah, okay, just, so I remember that you wasn't were- Wasn't that the one at- um, No, actually I thought that was, was that one was pretty mild comparing, yeah. but- um, The one at the, we're talking at St. Anne's. I, right? I thought that one, you had a pretty also, strong the, reaction to I did. that one, right? Well, in my audience, several people walked out oh, yeah. the, viol the, uh, the rape. Yeah, there's a rape, um, a rape on well, stage. What do you think of that though? Um, you know, when, there are kinds of violence. 
uh, you know, and some people are, you know, triggered by what oh, they yeah. see. I mean, do you, uh, do you have a strong feeling about sexual violence on a stage? Do you? Uh, well, I guess it depends how it's handled. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very it's broad really, question. It's difficult to say. I think there's often uh, depictions of, of rape on stage can be, I mean, obviously very unsettling. Uh, and, and I don't think you need to have had like a first-hand experience. I mean, right. I think it's good that there's warnings right now. I mean, it's easy to make fun of them, but I think it's good that there's very detailed warnings right. um, before you go into a show. And I, and I really wish more people actually read them because I often see online, oh my God, that show really, but well, you kind of have to maybe do a little research before you go in. You know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, there is so much, let's just acknowledge there is so much bad staging of violence oh on my God, stage. Yeah. You know, battle scenes. How many bad, like clinking of swords have you seen? Clink, clink, clink down. Clink, and clink, clink punches. up. I mean, you know, there's so much. You know, so many people are not. Uh, uh, so many actors really are not directed well in terms of violence. Um, uh, and and probably you know it's the most problematic in Shakespeare, which you know has so many of those huge, large battle scenes to make those with any kind of cinematic quality. And that maybe is a mistake to go that route mm -hmm. on stage. But I'll tell you what I love this, the, 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 the violence I loved most in the last couple of years <laughs> was, uh, in the play, uh, Fairview, which breaks down into a food fight. Oh yeah. And it becomes, it was the, uh, the unleashing mm -hmm. of chaos on the stage and the kind of joy that the actors took in just letting go. I mean, to the point where they weren't, you know, they were basically throwing things at each other. Wasn't... But do, do you count that as violence? Well, what, I mean, there's, there's degrees okay. of violence. It wasn't right. murder. It was chaos. It was a rumble. Right. Um, uh, so you think you're, you're discounting right. my describing <laughs> that as violence. That to me works better than, you know, like gunshots, which oh, right. I, you know, yeah. always are often are, you know, Terrible. Right. You're getting at something important here, Peter, which is that literal portrayals of violence on stage have got to be a hundred percent to right. Uh, right. You've got to have a stage combat director who has really done the homework. Uh, if you're firing a gun on stage, it needs to be loud. Uh, if, if if there's any failure in physical stage combat, if it looks unconvincing, the whole fabric of reality is going to be ripped and you're lost. You're lost immediately. Uh, but there's another element we haven't talked about that for me is the key and is a way of getting around some of these problems. And that is surprise. Mm -hmm. mm. For, for me, all of the most powerful uses of stage violence that I can think of have come in a sense almost from out of nowhere. Uh, a little later in the podcast, I'm going to be talking about a particular show, a revival of Macbeth. And it ends with uh, something that I am not going to describe or even hint at, uh, because that's part of the effect of the show. It comes from nowhere. And I don't gasp very often at the theater. I've been doing this for a <laughs> long time. But I tell you, I, I let out a nice, big, no fooling gasp when this happened, because I was taken completely by surprise. I was horrified, and and Erica, you were with me that night and can t can testify to the truth of this. We were both stunned by that theatrical gesture. That is theater of the most primal and fundamental kind, and um, uh, it excites me. But you've got to make it work because if it doesn't work, it is going to fall so flat that you're just going to want to slink out the stage door when it's all over. It's interesting that you're saying that because last night, coincidentally, I uh, caught up with a, a soldier's story mm -hmm. on, on Broadway. And uh, I found the violence, which there's quite a lot of it in the play, I found it to be staged in a very ineffective manner. Uh, it felt so fake and so contrived. Uh, and I think... I, I like the play, actually. I think the play is pretty schematic, but it works. It's a good yarn. It, it, it does what it has to do. But I found the staging so fake. It was, it, it, it was not visceral at all. Mm. Uh, there's, there's scenes where these soldiers are punching each other, and I, <laughs> it was just laughable. It was laughable. It was, didn't work at all. Did you, did you guys, did you I guys did see, see it? I did see it. Yeah, I, I had I, the same sort of anemic feel about some of that. I didn't. This I, has to be literally, I mean, it's a punch in the gut. This is right. what happened on stage, and yes, you have exactly. to feel every punch. And it's just like, wow, okay. And then there's a gunshot, and it's just 
also so contrived it didn't work at all. And actually, there's the show that I want to talk about later, my, my pick or non-pick, uh, also has very intense violence. Uh, so I'll, I'll come back to that cool. uh, la la later. All right. And so I guess we're going to move on to the next uh, question. One the more last, mailbag question? One more uh, from Frank Funari. Ooh, I hope I said that right. In Boston. In exotic Boston. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, our, Frank, our, our, our correspondents should include pronouncers with their names. I yes, think. please. <laughs> to avoid. I mean, not that I will. It's, it will not help me at all. Um, <laughs> so the question is, uh, I'm unsure if all the places you write for allow comments, but if so, do you ever look at them? Do readers ever reach out to you after your review? Do you receive more feedback when you really dislike the production rather than when you give a good review? Mm. Wow. That's okay. So I guess there's several questions into one, but right. I guess the ideas of feedback and how to right. deal with feedback. Right. I never most read the my, comments. Most of my feedback is for good reviews. Oh, uh, maybe that's... that's surprising, but that is in fact, uh, people, I don't usually, I, we don't get a lot of comments at the wall street journal per se, but I get them through my blog, through its mailbox. Uh, obviously you hear a lot of people nowadays, you hear from a lot of people through the social media and uh, because my, my picture runs with my reviews, people know what I look like and they will come up to me in the theater. Oh, and, yes. um, I, I, it's very, it's very unusual to, I don't, here's I, what I, 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 there, I, I was going to say, I, the first part of the question, I would like, we could break it down. Um, mm -hmm. The first part of the question was, do you ever look at the comments? Well, we run comments. The Times runs comments. The Journal runs comments underneath your reviews. I never read them because, first of all, they're anonymous. Most people mm -hmm. make up names. And whether Love Me Tender 27, you know, uh, has something not <laughs> nice or, or evil to say, I don't know who that is. And I don't know where it's coming from. And it, 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 to me, it, it, uh, it denatures the quality of 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 where it what I, I it's all about who's saying it. I mean, even if it's not, you know, I don't know the person by name, but it makes a difference to me if you name yourself. And I've had so many experiences of it being cavalier and I think not helpful uh, to hear what people's uh, visceral responses are when they're not addressed to you, but to the world. But do people email you? Yes. OK, right. Oh, yeah. So I get what emails. about that? Uh, I get all kinds. I mean, I don't know about you. I get um, I get people who are trying to discern my political uh, point of view and will, you know, either redress me as a libtard or some <laughs> stupid, you know, uh, moniker that they think, you know, is going to like in infuriate me. Um, uh, Wait, or I get so they want to know your politics so that they can decide whether or not they agree with you. They wanted to instruct me on how I, I get a lot of like. Uh, instruction on how you know uh, people of a certain political views oh, okay. uh, should burn in hell yeah. and the rest of the world that kind of thing. I mean, I get a certain amount of that, but um, but the thoughtful remarks I get are on both sides. I mean, I get people agreeing and disagreeing very, um, uh, I think, respectfully in emails for the most part. And the other thing that actually, I, I actually get comments even when I post on social media, I don't know if you guys do, mm -hmm. but if I post a, a review before it runs in the paper, because we, it, you know, you post the day before sometimes, people will find um, uh, mistakes, grammar issues, and they will correct them for me, wow. and I can do it before it's actually published. So it's useful, actually, <laughs> to have these, you know, to have people to be reading those comments. That helps. Mm -hmm. And I mean, but those are the ones that are directly, uh, you know, either on Facebook or Twitter to me. Yeah, I mean, pr pretty much same. Uh, I don't read comments, but I do get emails and I read them. And, uh, and do you if, respond to emails? It depends. If it's, a, if it's a personal attack, I don't because there's no point. But if it's someone who's making an, or, or an argument in a cogent or semi-cogent manner and, and remains civil, right? I, I, often, I often reply. I do. <laughs> uh, I mean, often most it, I mean, often is most of them actually. If if they're civil, I do reply. There are all, there are there are sort of tells that people have for when they're going to like unleash something nasty. <laughs> uh, one of them is a subject line that just says "your review of." <laughs> right. Yes, that's it's true. Nine times so out true. of ten, I know it's going to be something where they're going to say, "You know, you don't know your ass from your elbow, buddy." Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't even glance at them. And You're absolutely, them. That, that is a tell. Uh, as opposed to somebody saying, you know, appreciate, if you use liked or appreciate, listen, if you hate something, you know, start your subject line with something like, you know, enjoyed your review. 
because then <laughs> at least you'll get a reading. You know, even if you go in to enjoy it because you're an idiot in the, you know, in the body of the reply. Okay, got me. But you, that's how you do it. You know, I'm just, yeah. that's a tip. No, that is, uh, you're absolutely correct. Right. That's true. Um, and in terms of the feedback, whether or not we've disliked, I, it's pretty much split. Mm -hmm. There's, it depends yeah, on the depends. show. It depends on the show, yeah. You know, some shows, yeah. some shows are just, you know, some shows are naturally, especially, mm -hmm. I find that people are most annoyed when it's a show that's for a younger audience, even their children, and they've taken, they've spent a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, to take their children and you've not trashed it, but you've indicated that it wasn't a delight for you. And they feel, they feel somehow that you've hurt their kids, not physically, right. but that there's something about that, that is, that they don't, they take umbrage at your rejection of their choice for their children. It's true. Well, that's yeah. I I, I stay I stay away from children. <laughs> <laughs> but you go, but you you move toward the light where rabbits are concerned. I I do I do. But uh, I actually you know and I've liked some shows that were targeting maybe a younger audience like, Be More Chill or I did not hate The Lightning Thief. <laughs> uh huh. Right. Um, that. And those shows are very divisive, actually, mm. uh, in terms of the comments we get. So it really is also about the audience. Uh, although that audience is more likely to express themselves on social media than email. Mm -hmm. It tends to be, in my experience, all the people who email and the others just bitch anonymously on social media. And the bottom line is, you know, uh, it doesn't really, you know, you can't be incorrect about how you felt about a show. You know, it's not like there's a right and a wrong. And sometimes I think readers imagine there is because they had this experience and why didn't you? It's the whole, you know, did you see the same show oh, yes. I did? And of course the answer is no, I saw a different show because I'm not you. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, this is the, but I, but people, you know, th there is still in the culture, you know, some idea about, you know, whether what it says about you as a person that I, that the, the person who's hired to be the judge uh, had a opposite reaction, and, well, and I think it's clear that, for instance, Terry, Terry, and I have a much richer life than you, Peter, because we <laughs> like be more chill. So that tells a lot about our superiority. Well, that's the other reason I like being on the show, and of course, it's part of our chemistry <laughs> in the theater. But yes, of course, you two have richer lives than I do. Clearly, yeah, exactly. I I don't doubt that at all. I learn from the, the two more, of you. That's why I'm more, here. More. A, more abundant lives. Yeah, yes, I well, understand. I get it. That's that's it. I just just so listeners know. Here, here. Okay. Oh, oh. Okay. Fun stuff. Now we got to do our picks of the week okay. because there's this week is some goodies. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Terry, you want to you want to start us off with? Right. Yeah. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I went a couple of weeks ago to Hunter College's Hunter Theater Project, which is. It's a new venture that mounts professional productions under the auspices of the school's drama department. They did Richard Nelson's Uncle Vanya last season. And um, this season, they are putting on Erica Schmidt's adaptation of Macbeth, which has previously run at Seattle Repertory Theater and New York's Red Bull Theater. And I, I, I heard a lot of buzz about it. And I got to the show at Hunter College. And I was... I was staggered by it. I, I just, it was one of the most striking high concept productions of a Shakespeare play that I've ever seen. Wow, I'm going. And, and, and it took tremendous liberties with the show. It's about, I think, 85 minutes long. It has a cast of seven young women hmm. who play schoolgirls, high school uh, schoolgirls in tartan uniforms. Uh, and they just seem like they're the, the picture of innocence. But where they are is not where you expect them to be. Uh, you're in a very small theater, about, I don't know, 110 seats. They're right in your laps. And the set appears to be, uh, my reading of it was uh, that it was the, the backyard of a condemned house on the wrong side of the tracks. And they bring with them paperback copies of Macbeth and... Uh, you conclude that for reasons not entirely clear, that they're acting out the play, uh, all giggly, all adorable. Uh, and as the situation develops, 
you realize that maybe they're not acting. Maybe something a lot more complicated and emotionally fraught is taking place as the the situation ramps up uh, and uh, gradually moves, not so gradually, I mean, this show's quite short, to this astonishing, truly shocking gesture of violence at the end. Uh, and then it's over, and you leave the theater, and they don't give you a program going in, so you, you are not privy to what the explanation of what you've seen. And it's completely ambiguous. Uh, I said in my review that it was like uh, Shirley uh, uh, Jackson's short story, The, 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 the Lottery, mm -hmm. oh, oh. That, that there is no explanation for what has happened. Hmm. It just happens. And that's an enormous part of the impact of the show. It, interesting. Uh, it's interesting, Terry. I, you know, did you, did you ever see something called Shakespeare's R&J? It was a play. No. It was a play done about it started about 20 years ago in New York. It was about four schoolboys in uniform who act out Romeo and Juliet. And it's very much with the same thing with the text. It's interesting. This is a, it was, and it was really about the clandestine romance at that time of two of the boys and how they, they, you know, through the story of Romeo and Juliet, they got to be, it was at a very repressive school. Um, so, I mean, there's an interesting template that obviously this, this piece that um, Schmidt's play uh, follows. Well, her, her adaptation's brilliant. It's staged with complete authority. That is a really good ensemble, and it's led by uh, two actors, one of whose work is familiar to me, uh, is Manny Mendez, who plays Lady Macbeth. Mm. She's mm. one of my favorite younger actors in New York. Oh, yeah, she's and great. Macbeth is, yeah, Macbeth is played by a young woman named Brittany Bradford, who's got to be a star in the making. I mean, when she's up there, you do not look elsewhere. And, uh, well, I... I, I I'm not going to forget this show very soon. As an aside, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the great pleasures of theater for me is seeing actors really early on. And sometimes you just know. You see someone and you know, you're like, oh my God, this is this person is going to be something. We should do a segment on that, on people yeah, we read. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, like they're standing, it's like they're standing in a spotlight. Right. I, I, I happened to review Zoe Kazan's first professional performance in uh, a, a revival of, of the, the stage version of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And I knew nothing about her. Uh, it's a, a familiar last name. But I thought, whoever this young woman is, she's going to do something, and I'm going to follow her. And I did, and she did. Uh, and she also had that quality of, of carrying the spotlight along with her, not in, not in an obtrusive way, but she just had the star quality. Yeah. And I think, it, I think as many Mendes has it as well. Uh, well, that's interesting. The first, going back to your thing about you know, the, 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 the origin stories, the first week, I, the first month I think I was reviewing theater for the New York Times back in the 90s, I saw a play called This Is Our Youth, by mm. Kenny Lonergan, oh. and one of the actors in it was a guy I'd never seen before named Mark Ruffalo, and he was, and I remember writing, you know, in my stupid, you know, <laughs> know-nothing way, this kid's going to go someplace, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, you know, like I knew what I was talking about. I did, but anyway, that was totally a uh, serendipitous uh, <laughs> result, um, but I, I mean, but yeah, Mark but Ruffalo not, was truly not a great actor. Uh, what? It's not about us. It's about them. Correct. And, yes. uh, Correct. When they give the every once in a while, and not all people who have major careers do this at the very beginning, mm -hmm. but every once in a while, somebody right from the start has got got the mark on their forehead. Yep. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay, I, I'm going to talk just briefly about a show I saw in, at Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia, the Tony-winning theater that does both new and. Um, of revived musicals. They've developed this piece called Gun and Powder uh, by, uh, with book and lyrics by Angelica Cher Cherry and uh, music by Ross Baum, a young songwriting team out of NYU. And it's a story, it's a really interesting story based on a legend in Angelica's own family about a pair of black sisters in the 1890s who passed for white. They were twin sisters, they passed for white and they went on a crime spree. Uh, and she imagined, they imagine the, the world of these uh, women uh, as they go off on their way trying to earn enough money to save their mother's uh, sharecropping business. 
as a sharecropper. And it's a very lovely, uh, the, the music is terrific. The first act is great and is often the case with developing musicals. The second act falls off in terms of the development of the story. They need to come back to it and really figure out how to bring all the themes that they uh, show off so well in the first act to some kind of uh, 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 more dynamic and and uh, logical fruition in the second. Uh, I uh, It's directed by Robert O'Hara of mm. Slave Play fame, and he brings a kind of political edge to the story, surprise, surprise. Uh, that's sort of one of his fortes. And uh, it, it might have too many layers, I think, this piece. And I think once they find their way through, through a bit of rewriting, hopefully, uh, they're going to have something that, you know, more theaters are going to want to do. Isn't it exciting to see shows in a state of development? Totally. Yeah. It's we great. don't often get this privilege, and it's it's mm -hmm. it's part of what and I really like. The, the, uh, the only thing, you know, the balance, the scary balance you have to uh, achieve when you're writing out of town in a place like Washington about new work is you you know you you know you may have some objections but you've got to temper them with a, a sense of generosity because you have to think about the future of the work and we're here as right. we're not just about you know whether or not you have to buy a ticket to this thing and you got to see it which is of course important and people will get that message but you've also got to understand that these things are fragile and very and people are very quick to to write off uh, or dismiss things in the producing world if they think they're going to have trouble, you know, or they think they're not going to be received with glowing support. So a first production, but you're right, Terry, it's a wonderful privilege mm -hmm. to see things in their gestational sort of stage. Mm -hmm. What do you got, Elizabeth? Well, I, uh, I caught up um, with uh, Medea uh -huh. at, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, uh, and it's... Uh, Directed by Simon, I know we. I think Peter, we we were both big fans of his Yerma, yes, which was kind of like a lightning bolt at Park Avenue uh, Armory. At Park Avenue Armory, uh, so I think we were really looking forward to this. Especially the cast was very alluring on paper. It was mm -hmm. uh, Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale, mm -hmm. and and Dylan Baker was always Fabulous. great fun to watch. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think basically what Simon Stone is doing now, so because he's doing these drastic rewrites of these classics and he's using, it's very weird what he's doing because basically the text is entirely new. He keeps the very general frame and then he makes up the story. Uh, and right. I, I'm just going to comment on the, uh, on the conceit there because it feels a little disingenuous to me that he keeps on using those big titles for shows that have nothing to do and it's it's kind of his. I think Helen Shaw made this very astute point in her review for for New York Magazine, like he's protecting himself behind the reputation of the work. He's treated as a director. At this point, he needs to be evaluated as a playwright director because mm. he wrote an entirely new play mm -hmm. using just the basic idea of the housewife who kills her children, mm -hmm. and and that's it. That's all that's left. He's, he makes up an entire new uh, backstory for them. They're a new character. They have new names. There's just... So we need to look at him not as a director, but as a playwright director. And that's a whole different thing. That's a whole yeah. different thing. Because right. what he's doing now... And usually he says something cute like, you know, Yurma was after Lorca. Right. And this, you know, after... Okay, well, no, you, you wrote a new play. Right. You wrote a new play and you have to be looked at as a director. That's a very good point. That's a very, very good so point. So you can't really hide behind the reputation because He doesn't nobody... even use the characters' names. No, he, it's completely... It's just Medea so that it conjures Medea. Right. But the, you know, they're... I forget what it means. It's not Jason. It's not... I mean, they all have different names. The, the kids, for instance, the kids in the original have... They're just... Props. The props. Right. They're just and here they are on stage almost the entire time, right. and they're very important. They have lines and they have personalities, and they carry cameras. You know, and they There's yeah, a whole right. Video component. So I thought the show looked great. Mm -hmm. Visually, it's always what he does is just great. Mm -hmm. But the the actors look completely at sea because, from what I understand, he really did not give them, them much hands-on direction. Mm -hmm. So poor Rose Byrne looks completely lost. Uh, 
And the final launch was very key in that show. And anybody who saw the De- the Deborah Warner version with Fiona Shaw, uh, like 15 or 20, which I was phenomenal. Right. And completely, you could not watch that yes. without... Talk about great violence. That was Holy. possibly oh, yeah. the oh, best yeah. violence Remember those two slashes of blood on the... Incredible, o- opaque, right? Uh, window, whatever that was. That oh was my wild. God, that was wild. I did. That so was. That was. That was. People let out screams at the when I saw. I know, it. right? It was insane. It was insane. Uh, very effective and just really brutal, and it was great. Mm. Um, but anyway, in this one, it is so ineffectual. It doesn't work at all, and yeah. then he does this really coy thing. Anyway, it's just. <laughs> Yeah. It felt it didn't work. so it was precious a, it in was the wrong way. And yeah. I want to see more of more by him, but I really want him to just just own up to being a playwright. Right. You know, just own up to him. It's not even revising at this point, which is interesting. That's I, something else. I, I don't can't know. It disagree. could be a anyway, that, that was kind of like a bummer. But I, I'm glad I saw it though, because there were yeah, visually I think he's really at the top of his game. Yeah, I mean Stone is Simon Stone is, you know, worth seeing even when it's, you know, a mistake. That's a very important that's a very important distinction you just drew, Peter, and it's worth underlining that there are artists who even their blunders you want to see. Okay, so I think that's all the time we've done we have for this week. <laughs> I'm tired. Um and should we uh wrap it up, gentlemen? As always, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I am Terry Teachout. And I'm Peter Marks. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the marvelous Erica Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle, spell out three, and write to us with more questions at threeontheisle at gmail.com, also spell out three. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, and don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play or whatever platform you listen to. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll be with you again very, very soon on the aisle. <laughs>